Church, how you doing? It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Um, love you. Love you all. Uh, let's open our Bibles to James 5, 1 through 6. And before you get there, I just, I just wanted to just mention, uh, we've been in this book for four months. You guys have been in it for four months. And uh, we, we've been in a, in a series on this book, uh, what we like to call uh, an expositional Bible preaching series. And what that means is just, all it means is that we don't just pick different topics to speak from. I mean, we're not just going through the Bible, seeing, okay, today, this Sunday, we're going to speak on this or that. Uh, but we actually submit ourselves to the whole counsel of God, and we submit ourselves to uh, a book of Scripture, and we say, Lord, you lead us. Uh, you speak to us according to your word. And so I tell you that because this morning, God's word has led us to James chapter 5. And uh, this is a very hard passage. Um, very hard passage to hear and a very hard passage to uh, preach from. And so I just want to uh, tell you guys how much I love you. But better yet, I want to tell you how much God loves you. And God loves you, church. And this word is for you guys. Let's read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the mysteries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mow your fields, which you kept back from by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of their harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let us pray. Father, we are, we are sobered by your word. And Lord, we know that you are a good father. And we know that you love us. And therefore, Father, we receive this word from you today. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to speak to us in such a way that brings no condemnation, but brings conviction and a desire to obey your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you guys know, uh, this is my first time back from uh, Pastor's College. And uh, this winter was, as many of you guys are aware, I know the Bernards are here, Vic Sinions from Maryland, and they're aware this winter was the worst winter in Gaithersburg, Maryland history. God loves me. <laughs> to our fortune and for our joy, this was the worst winter in the D.C. era. And, and 
there was in particularly two storms that hit back to back. It was 20 inches of snow each storm. And it was like we had one like on Saturday or in, in, in Sunday, and then we had the next one that Tuesday night. And so on Wednesday morning, when I woke up, I was like, oh, for sure they're going to cancel class. They're going to cancel class. I don't even have to worry about it. I was certain that Jeff Perswell would cancel class. But when I least expected it, at 7.30 a.m., I receive an email from Jeff to the class, and he says, we will be starting class at 11 a.m., my friends. So please make sure you get here. Now, at that moment, I mean, we, we, we lived in this home that was way out there. And, and the driveway was about 120 yards of length. There was about 30-something inches of snow on the ground. And I'm not that tall. <laughs> As you can tell, Tim, I, I need a stool here. And so I'm like, how am I going to get there? So all of a sudden I start calling friends. Hey, guys, can somebody pick me up because my car is all the way to the end of the driveway. It's, it's stuck. You know, I, I don't know how to take it out. So somebody says, okay, I'll go and pick you up. I'll be there. Uh, I think he said, like, I'll be there in 30 minutes. And so I get ready. You know, I really had no snow boots or snow pants or anything like that. I just put my jeans on, some sneakers on, and my backpack on, and my, my jacket, my backpack, and I start heading out. You know, because i got quite a while to walk. As I head out, the snow is about close to my waist. Like, it's probably about this high. And so I'm walking through the snow, and I see the guy that comes to pick me up, and he's over there in the, in the main street, and he's... You know, he gets off the car. He's like, come on, Jose, let's go. And so I'm walking, I'm walking. And when I get to about halfway there, I start thinking, my heart is about to give out. I start thinking, this tonight, I'm going to have to walk this back to the house. You know what? I'm just going to give up. And I just waved my hands. Bye, buddy. See you later. See you tomorrow in class. And I went back home. Well, my friends, what ended up happening was the next day when I got to class, they had a name for me. They called me Snowflake. <laughs> they had a seat separated for me to the side. Okay? And it said, Biblical Manhood Workshop. Jose Prado, and it was my only seat. So, I mean, I got, man, I got so much scrutiny. I got, I got so much hassle for that. My friends, if I had known the scrutiny and the judgment that would fall upon me when I got back to class, I would have handled things differently. Well, this morning, God is doing this for us. You see, we were all walking on, we are all walking on a road up to our waist in the materialistic culture of this world. And many of us are tempted to just give, give into it. Many of us are under the impression that there are no eternal consequences to the financial choices that we make. But God, being rich in mercy, like a father ready to instruct his children, this morning transports us into a courtroom. And he calls us to witness the judgment that will fall on all who give into this materialistic culture. He calls us to witness the judgment that will fall upon all who miss 
handle wealth. That we may consider the choices that we make. And we can, we can sum this up this way. This is what James is telling us here in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 5. He is saying this. He's saying, consider your handling of money in light of the coming judgment. Consider, guys, your handling of money in light of the coming judgment. There will be judgment. Now, now who is James speaking to? Is James speaking about wealthy Christians in the congregation? Is he speaking about wealthy unbelievers around the congregation? This is a very important question. And there are, there are some good things to argue for both you know, pro and con. But for instance, we can point out the fact that James frequently uses the words, my brothers. Every time he addresses the people that he's speaking to, he says, my brothers. Yet, in our text this morning, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, the words, my brothers, is not used. On the other hand, though, the very phrase, come now, which is at the beginning of the verse, introduces this section, and, it re- and, and, it, and we saw in chapter 4 that this very phrase referred to believers. So there are reasons to read it both ways. Bottom line is this, guys. Whoever you think James is directly speaking to, he is clearly intending to speak to us this morning. At the very least, we can conclude that James' words are designed in part to create a mindset amongst believers in regards to money. I mean, let's just assume for a minute that he's writing something that he's directing only to wealthy believers. Now, if that was the case, then why write it in a book that he's sending to believers? Now, the only reasonable answer indicates that what he wants is he wants believers to hear what he's saying to those unbelievers. He desires that the way he addresses these unbelievers will have an impact in the mindset of his believing audience. And that audience includes us. So James wants us to think about this. He wants us to consider the way we deal with our own wealth by presenting to us the way that these rich individuals have dealt with their own material wealth. And the one temptation that we can come up with here when we get to passages like this is that we can also be tempted because of the language that James uses when he says, you rich we can be tempted to say, well, this is not something he's writing to me, Jose. I mean, Prado, come on, man. <laughs> I'm a believer, but I'm not rich. I mean, I don't have an annual income of above 200000 or or a million dollars or whatever you want to uh, set artificially in your mind as, as being rich. And before we're so quick to excuse ourselves, I wanted to point something out to you. And no, it's not what you're thinking. You see, you're probably thinking, Jose, I know where you're going with this. I've heard it a million times. You're going to go again with this whole guilt trip about how I have a car, I have a roof, I have food on my table, how I'm uh, uh, you know, in the top 5% of, of the wealthiest of the world, and, and blah, 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 blah. Right? Well, actually, I'm not. 
You see, even though those statistics are very convicting, my desire and James' desire this morning is that we would be convicted by the Word of God instead. You see, if you don't see yourself as materially rich, even though your $30,000 a year job puts you above the 5% wealthiest people in, in the world, that's okay. You don't have to see yourself as rich. You see, because what James is addressing here is not the fact that these people are rich. What James is addressing is what they're doing with their riches. It's not a matter of being rich. It's a matter of stewardship. It's a matter of what are you doing with the money that God has provided. See, God doesn't condemn the rich in this passage because they're rich. He's not making an indiscriminate attack on the rich. In fact, some of those most noble saints in the Bible have been rich. Abraham, Job, David, Josiah, Philemon, Joseph of Arimathea, and Lydia, just to name a few, guys. The focus of this passage is on those who gain their wealth or use it in an ungodly manner. Those who make money the center of their lives. And to do that, you don't have to be rich. Those who fail to use their money to the benefit of others. You see, so we can't excuse ourselves from these passages, no matter what our bank account looks like. These passages are all for us and not for anybody else. They're for us, guys. And James uses jolting language. I mean, he, he calls on the rich here to lament their impending judgment because of their misuse of wealth. And at the same time, he wants us to consider our use of wealth in light of God's analysis of their use of wealth. He wants us to consider our use of wealth in light of the final judgment. James is saying, look at, look at the way you use your wealth in light of the final judgment. In light of God's analysis, in light of God's standard, in light of God's measurements, in light of God's evaluation, and live accordingly. You see, James is going to help us do this by walking us into this courtroom scene. He's walking us into this judgment scene. And as he does that, he's going to present three things to us. Okay, So there's three things that he wants us to consider. He's gonna, he wants us to see the indictment against these people. And by seeing that, he wants us to consider our love of money. Then he wants to present to us the evidence against these people. And by doing that, he wants us to consider the way we use our money. Thirdly, he wants us to consider the coming judgment upon these people. So let's begin with our first point, the indictment. Consider your love of money. Let's read James 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You laid up treasures in the last days. 
See, in these opening verses, James is presenting the opening argument. He is presenting the charge against these individuals in a very fierce way. We can presume by the tone by which he speaks to them that these rich men might be just going about their business. They're just going about their business, and James wants to call their attention and the severity of their actions. And so what better way can he do that than by prophesizing their doom? I mean, he's, he's just laying it on them. And we can look at this and think, man, what a, what, a, what a jerk. I mean, couldn't he have just pulled them to the side and said, hey, man, I want to ask you a question. Or maybe he could have done the Palm Vista way. Hey, man, I, I have an observation. I mean, why does he have to use this kind of language? Well, think about it this way, guys. What would you like someone to do if you were running into incoming traffic with blinders on? Would you like people to be gentle with you or would you want someone to tackle you to the ground and save your life? And this is what James is doing with these men. They were living their lives with blinders on, walking the path to destruction. And James tackles them with these words in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James wants them to know that their handling of money reveals their true spiritual condition. James wants them to know that God is not ignorant. Or interest, or uninterested in their financial handlings. And he wants them to know that there's a very serious charge against them. We can sum up this charge against them in the words at the end of verse 3. Look at, look at them with me. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. This is the charge, guys. It's right there. Now, in order for us to understand this charge, we must first look at why this, this is such a wrong thing to do. I mean, doesn't God delight in our prosperity? I mean, what is wrong about pursuing prosperity and wealth? I mean, what, what, is, what, is, the old, what is the command that, they, that they've broken? Well, let's look at it, okay? Matthew 6, 19 to 20. 20. James is just using language that he's heard before from his brother. Half-brother Jesus. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, Jesus is not against investment. He is, he is he's against bad investment. He's against you setting your heart on the temporal comforts and securities that money can afford in this world. Instead of setting your heart on the eternal satisfaction of living for the glory of God. The primary charge against these men is not that they had laid up treasures for themselves. That's not it. But that they had laid up treasure in the wrong place. And Jesus explains to us the peril of misplaced treasure in verse 21. Just keep reading. It says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the charge against these men is that their hearts were where their treasures were. 
The hearts of these men were far from God and being satisfied in Him. The satisfaction of the hearts was fixed in their possessions, in their money. And this is why we can relate to these men. Because like these men, we can so easily believe what I like to call the the big Christian lie. The big Christian lie. And this is the lie that tells us that we can serve both money and God. We can find satisfaction both in God and in our possessions. Jesus leaves us no room for us to believe this, guys. As we have seen here, he has told us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Furthermore, he tells us, if we keep reading in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And this is the charge against these men. My friends, seeking fulfillment in money, land, Houses, cars, clothes, boats, campers, hot tubs, world travel, cruise lines. Has left us bound, engaged by materialism. And like drugs, we pathetically think that our only hope lies in getting more of the same. Meanwhile, the voice of God, many times unheard amid the clamor of our possessions, is telling us that even if materialism did bring happiness in this life, which we can all attest it doesn't, it will leave us unprepared for the next life. And like these men in, Ch- in James chapter 5, it will lead us to our eternal judgment. And so as we consider this indictment of these men, James appeals to us to consider the affections of our hearts. Are we truly in love with Christ? Are we truly satisfied by Christ? Or are we in love with the possessions and the money that we have? Or are we pursuing the money and possessions that we wish we had? So let us turn now to the second point in your notes this morning. And and let us look at the evidence against these guys. The evidence that gives evidence to their charge in chapter 5. Uh, let us consider our own use of money. Now, how do you know, how do we know that we are laying up treasures on earth? Well, James continues this trial against the worldly rich, and he, and he follows it with these evidences. And James, you see, he understands that the use of our money serves as an indicator of our spiritual condition, and it testifies for or against us. And so, He gives us four ways. We're going to look at four ways that these men are handling their money in order to consider our handling of our money. Okay? And the first one we see are verses 2 and 3. So let us go there. It says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. In verses 2 and 3, gives us a specific condemnation of hoarding wealth and things. Let me put it in a provocative way for us, okay? This is what James is saying. Your home inventory and the general presence of extra may reveal where you are laying up treasure. 
Notice, notice this illustration. He says, your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eating. Your gold and silver have rusted. He speaks of overage, spoil, of moth-eaten clothing, and of disuse of wealth. All these things are signs of hoarding wealth. A person who has so much, they can't even get around to using what they have. So their clothes end up being moth-eaten. They never get to use their riches that, that, they, so, that, that they have, so their riches rot. He's speaking about the hoarding of wealth. My friends, I don't know about you, but I stand before you as guilty as charged. I was convicted of this as Christine and I were packing to come back from the pastor's college. And when we left to school, we left with six huge bags and six boxes. And on our way back, we came back with 12 boxes. So we doubled our stuff in one year. And as I was going through the clothes and shoes and just stuff I was carrying around, there was stuff in my, that, that in the whole year where I, while I was at PC, I didn't even use. I had no use for. Furthermore, guys, I look back at the years of plenty in my life. When I was eating out with my family three or four nights a week, when I was buying whatever amount of stuff I wanted, and I, I am grieved at the vast accumulation of self-directed wealth focused solely on my own comforts and pleasure. Guys, hoarding is, is, is sin, my friends. When we hoard, we're improperly using the wealth that the Lord has given us. I love this quote by Randy Alcorn. He says, God prospered me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. See, God gives us more money than we need so that we can give generously. So let's look at evidence number two. And for that, we need to go to verse four. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here, James gives a specific condemnation of these men, mistreatment and lack of concern for the well-being of their employees. He says to them, your lack of fair treatment of employees cries out against you. The image here is of a wealthy landowner and them taking advantage of their farm workers. Now the accusation here is it's a very strong accusation. It's an accusation of dishonesty, of dishonorable dealings with those who are not in the position to buy with the wealth and the influence of the landowner. And indeed, a lack of appropriate concern for the laborers and a desire for our own self-aggrandizement that leads these people to withhold the pay to these laborers who have worked in the harvest. Such elements in our own individual and corporate ethics reveal a deep-seated worldliness that God, through James, says that he sees. Maybe nobody else sees. Maybe nobody else can do anything about. But he sees and he judges. Now I suspect that there are relatively few of us here 
who actively practice this kind of business management. But we must ask ourselves this. Would our biggest problem here be in the area of the sin of omission? Of not thinking about those who who work for us? Of not caring for them the way that God would have us care for them? The way uh, that, you know, those laborers, those day-day laborers, the people who who clean our homes, the the people who keep our yards, the, the, the waitress who serves our lunch order, are we concerned for those who are less advantaged? Or are we so concerned about getting the best deal for us that we deny the fair wages of others? See, one sad example of this is, is the way illegal aliens are exploited in this country. And I know that they're illegal aliens, but I want to focus on the fact that they're exploited many, many times by, by those who call themselves Christians. So let us look at evidence number three. Okay? And for that, we go to verse five. And James says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You see, James, he, he's identifying just another area. He, he specifically condemns selfish extravagance in our use of wealth. He's saying that our self-indulgence may reveal where we may be laying up treasure. Now, James has really started meddling now. I mean, he's really getting in, in, deep in our hearts. And he says to us, you have lived luxuriously on earth and led a life of lavish pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He attacks extravagant comfort and the softness of luxury. What he's attacking is a life without self-denial, guys. A life without self-denial. Any general pattern of the use of our wealth that is only self-focused and self-pleasuring is sinful. No matter how much money, no matter how much money we make. The issue is not how much a person makes. You see, big salaries are a fact of our time. But the issue here is being deceived into thinking that a $100,000 salary must be accompanied by a $100,000 lifestyle. The issue is, is those of us with our $30,000 salary being able to live a $60,000 lifestyle as long as we make our minimum payments on our credit cards. Guys, we must learn to deny ourselves. James is saying that if we live a life of self-indulgement, we are like a pig that is being fattened in order to be slaughtered. We are enjoying ourselves right now. We are eating and drinking all we can now, but the day of slaughter is coming, and guess who's going to be served like lechon asado? And so the questions that serve us to ask ourselves at, at a time like this is what have we given up to support the work of the church or of missions what are we giving up to care for poor christians even those in our own congregation you see it's not enough for us to ask what have we given 
Anybody can give from their spoils. Anybody can give from what's left over. My friends, if our spending and our Christian giving does not have a component of self-denial, then we may be laying up treasure on earth and laying up our leftovers in heaven. And so James brings us to evidence number four. I love you guys. He brings us to verse six. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. You see, in verse six, he gives a specific condemnation of the use of wealth in such a way that it harms others. James shows us in verse 6 that that the use of wealth and our desire for wealth that hurts others reveals where we are laying up treasure. And the language is strong here. It is the language of wrongful judicial murder. It speaks of the betrayal of a willing victim. Now, it seems doubtful if James means this literally. Um, We saw in chapter 4, as Al preached to us two weeks ago, that James accuses Christians of killing and adultery, and we concluded that he meant spiritual murder, right? Hate, or spiritual adultery, disloyal to God. So, so how have the rich condemned and murdered? And, and I just wrote this. This is just an example, guys. Uh, it's just an example. UNICEF estimates that childhood malnutrition, preventable diseases, and illiteracy could be eradicated over the next 10 years at a price tag of about $25 billion per year. The amount that U.S. residents spend on beer annually is $31 billion. You see, it is a lifestyle choice on our part that we spend more on beer than we spend on international relief. It is a lifestyle choice on our part that we spend more money on our pets than what we give to the church. It is a lifestyle choice that we prefer to have more vehicles outside our homes than children inside the home. It is a lifestyle choice when we prefer to die with money and possessions in bank accounts and safety boxes while others close to us live in poverty. This is the evidence that James is presenting against the rich in this passage. And this very evidence renders a verdict. It renders a verdict against them. Now, what is that verdict? Let us look at our last point, the verdict, and let us consider the coming judgment. Now, what does the Lord say about the evidence as it has been presented? And so, if we look back through those last six verses, we can easily see the verdict. And and the verdict is final judgment. You see, James commands them to weep and wail now for the judgment that is about to come in verse 1. And then he proceeds to tell them what the judgment looks like in verse 3. He says, you will be consumed as fire. And in verse 5, he illustrates that for them again. And he says, he condemns them to be slaughtered. My friend, James wants us to be reminded that if we are laying up treasure on earth, we will face final judgment. Our treasures will rot, and we will rot with them. So each of us 
have to ask ourselves, do I hoard? Am I guilty of over-accumulation? Have I ever or am I now defrauding someone by holding back wages from them? Am I holding back from blessing others that are more disadvantaged than me? Am I holding back from using my money to invest in God's kingdom and for the expansion of His gospel? Have I given in the culture siren song of self-indulgence? Are there sub-Christian excesses in my life? And they could be, guys, they could be as expensive as luxuries and cars and things, and it could be as simple as Starbucks coffee every morning, day and night. Have I heard others around me in my pursuit of riches? These and many other questions are necessary for us to answer because the way we use our money and the way we view our wealth will ultimately give testimony for or against us in the final judgment. Church, I love you. And this has been a very hard week for me to prepare for this message. I know that this is a very hard message to hear. Because it's been hard for me to hear. And it's been hard, especially when I'm preaching to a group of folks who I love very much. And who have, in many cases, given sacrificially in order for me to be standing here this morning. It is also difficult because even though we have walked into a courtroom setting that characterizes the unbelieving world, we can all feel the, the, the guilty verdict of materialism that, that we breathe in our day. In fact, as I prepared, I was brought to tears thinking of, of, of many times I have failed in this area. And, and so I want to share with you a story from Luke 18, verses 18 to 26. A story that brought me more, much faith this week and that I pray um, will bring you uh, much faith. And it's the story of the rich young ruler. And uh, we see that he comes to the Lord and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No, I mean, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And, and this young fellow just starts saying, Yes, I have done this. I have done this. Yes, Lord, I have done this. And then the Lord says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when, when this young, rich ruler heard these words, he was very saddened. You see, he, he saw, he understood what Christ was asking of him. And it was hard. It was a hard thing to hear. And he was satin. And, and the Lord was satin, it tells us. And then the Lord says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, His disciples, Then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? 
And you see, guys, as you have heard this message today, I know that there are many of us who are saying, I- I'm guilty. Lord, I-, I hear what you're saying. It's hard to hear. Lord, I-, I hear what you're asking of me, and it's hard for me. But guys, I don't want you to leave like this rich young ruler left sad. I don't want you to leave sad. God does not want you to leave sad. This is what God wants you to know. And it's on verse 26, he says, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And so guys... God wants you to know that the things that He has asked you to do, that the things that He you have heard this morning that are are, are troubling your heart, are saddening you, and, and the changes that need to be made. This message is not about you making those changes. This message is not about me giving you a list of things that you need to do, a list of things that you need to consider. This message is about one thing, is that you would have faith on the one that can make it possible. Is that you would have faith on the one that can change your heart from being self-indulgent into being a generous giver. And that you have faith in the one that can change our hearts to love Him, to treasure Him above all things. That is what this message is about. I could sit here and tell you and give you stats about how much money is needed here and how much money this, but that's not going to change you. What's going to change you is understanding that what is impossible for us to do is possible for God to do. God can change our hearts. And so we need to come. With faith, we need to repent of laying up treasures on earth for ourselves. And we need to say, Lord, here are my treasures. I lay them at your feet. I want you to be my treasure. I want to worship you. I want to love you. I want to live according to your kingdom, according to your mission. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that though we have put to death the righteous one, you do not resist us Because He has died for our sins, Lord. And He has forgiven us of our sins. Father, we thank You. We thank You, Lord, that we can look to You with hope and not with sadness. We thank You, Lord, that we can depend on You and we can come to You and ask You to change our hearts. We need need heart surgery, Lord. Put in us the desire to love You, to treasure You, 
above all things. Put in us, Lord, the desire to give and to live not for ourselves, but to live for you. Only you can do it, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.